welcome back to the Millennial Ag Podcast, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your co-hosts, Valen Cawhorn and Catherine Lotspeech. Listeners, we have made it to episode 150, and we appreciate your patience while we've been bringing this episode to you. It's a monumental one for us, and we have been looking um, for an excellent and exciting topic to um, celebrate with. So... With that in mind, uh, Valine and I had taken sort of an informal poll um, in the last month or two, trying to figure out what um, agriculturists thought the 10, 12, 15 biggest uh, issues in agriculture are right now, the most pressing pressing issues of the day. One of them that came up was um, the concern about foreign ownership of United States farmland. And as we started looking into this, we found some pretty interesting um, information and rabbit trails and avenues to travel down. And um, we have a guest here today who is going to um, speak about a topic that actually dovetailed with the land ownership when I called him about it. So um, it's not it's not precisely about foreign land ownership, but the the topic is very, very interesting, and the guest is even better. So it's my delight to introduce you to Mr. Warren Peterson. He is a close family friend of my family in Utah, has been um, a, a warm and generous influence in my life, and we are delighted that he has joined us here today. So Warren, welcome to the show. Thank you, Catherine. You expect me to live up to all of what you've just said? <laughs> I know you will do it with panache. <laughs> So ladies and gentlemen, Warren um, is a lawyer um, and don't, don't, uh, let's see, don't hate him for that. It's, it's really okay. He's, he's, a, he's one of the good guys <laughs> and his expertise lies well in many places, but for the purposes of today, his expertise lies in water law, water law and policy and all of the things that needs to be known about water, especially um agriculture water. So we've brought Warren here today to talk about um, the one thing that every single one of us needs to make anything go in agriculture. Um, as you know, with droughts, with, um, you know, creeping influences from urban and suburban municipalities, all of those sorts of things, water, the use of it, the protection of it, the, the, um, the, proper management of it is at the top of of any list um you know when it comes when when water comes to mind so Warren um I started out last week when I called you to talk about land ownership um asking about what it would mean if foreign entities owned land um we talked about that a little bit but you backed it up and we talked about how um how um, that might dovetail into water being exported to foreign countries, water being used to grow a crop here in the U.S. then being exported to foreign countries. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and kick us off with um, a little more exploration of that idea? Sure, sure, Catherine. Let's let's talk about what uh, water is where I spent most of my career, but for. Well, nearly 14 years, I worked with a agriculture, actually was not as an attorney, but as, a, as an executive in a land, farm and ranch land investment company. I was the vice president over land and that 
included natural resource issues and especially water, which dovetails into now what's now a 45 year career in water policy, water law, and also uh, ag I've been right at that juncture point between agriculture and and water law, water policy, and such. So let's let's make the bridge from foreign land ownership because in in the United States, about half of the value of the land that we grow food on. Excuse me. Let me rephrase that. About half of the production that comes from the land where we grow food comes from irrigated land. And the number is actually increasing as water supply becomes less certain. Uh, apply whatever terminology you want, but the, uh, the weather's, I think it's basically the weather's becoming unpredictable. Um, one farmer said to me, if, if it wasn't for uh, <clears throat> managing crops, weather and people, farming wouldn't be a bad occupation. <laughs> So the, the idea of, of managing water resources, and then you overlay that, you know, everything in agriculture is connected. It's all like the, the, the garden spider's web. You pull one corner of it, everything in the web moves. But the if, if you pull on the, the ownership issue, you're also tugging on water because in the lands, especially west of the 100th meridian, agriculture means irrigation. East of the 100th meridian, that's becoming increasingly true. And if we're not doing artificial irrigation, of course, we're looking for the best lands. You know, take the Mississippi River Valley. <clears throat> the, the, the whole basin relies on either ground, mostly on groundwater, but assuming mostly on irrigation from the sky, but groundwater as well. So this all, all fits together. So if you're talking foreign ownership of, <clears throat> of farmland, that means foreign ownership of that productive resource essential production, essential to production, water. And water policy in the United States is interesting because water is mostly managed by the states. So if you have growing ownership <clears throat> looking to acquire land in the states where the best water resources are, uh, and they have the capability through uh, sovereign wealth funds and so on to pick off those lands, that's going to create some interesting policy implications for us going forward. <clears throat> then, so that's and that's one part of it. So, so you export American water <clears throat> by growing commodities and shipping them to the the countries where the markets are. But that criticism is also being laid at agriculture, uh, especially in the West. You see, in California and Utah, I've looked at uh, <clears throat> reference not not just references, but outright debates in the press over why why are we allowing agriculture to use water for irrigation we're so valuable and we need it for so many other things the market very actively competes for water so if if we need water in the west to grow our food why are we allowing foreign use of our food and foreign ownership of our land foreign ownership of our water rights and and that when I don't lose sleep over that, but it increases my blood pressure when I hear people use that argument. <laughs> so, what what other forms of production in the American economy should we say shouldn't be allowed to be exported? That's what our international economy is based on, and farming is one of those 
economists call it most efficient of uh, industries because prices are so sensitive to production and demand and it's the ownership is so diversified but if you start concentrating that ownership in foreign ownership that are not engaged in policy development and needs for allocating water in the economy and essentially being responsive to local needs and, and local concerns, um, our lives become a lot more complicated and our national security may be uh, less certain. I don't know. Catherine, that was a big question you threw at me and I got kind of a big squishy answer, but that's that's the general outline of, I mean, that's the framework in which I look at it. No. So Go ahead, Val. I was going to jump in because it's, as I've been following state policy in the state of Idaho a little more over the last couple of years, you know, this topic keeps coming up and water is like in Idaho, we, I mean, water's, um, is fought over with the ground and surface water users. And that, that could be a whole debate and conversation in itself, but where does, where does policy lie with preserving agriculture, preserving our water and preserving our lands. It's most of that is a state governed thing, but it also flows. You look at Colorado, for example, in the Colorado river and how much of the United States that, that supplies, um, where, and the interstate compacts and again, very complicated, but does, in your opinion, how do we, how do we as a nation work together when these are state policy issues typically i guess well let's you mean state policies in the states of the united states of america correct <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that clarification okay I'm, I'm going to take you back uh, to, to to your youth 2012 uh, I, I was asked to be to be a scribe in a meeting sponsored by Texas A&M University, uh, Kingsville. And Texas A&M Kingsville called in the largest ranchers from across. They invited the largest ranchers, and they, their their methodology was pretty simple. They had a list of which which ranches managed the most acreage, and they invited those representatives from those ranching operations to come to the. Dallas Fort Worth Airport, and we hold up for two days in the in a hotel there. And the first year, first day, we talked about problems, and the second day, we talked about solutions, and related to agriculture and water. And there, my, you know, my my job literally was to be the fly on the wall, and with with one other fellow to take these take notes on what was said, and then build a report out of it. And it kind of surprised me, their their reactions. One of them was, we need to quit whining about agriculture not having a fair shake in water and other policies. We know it better than anyone else. If we don't lead out, society is worse off for that. So their, their first premise was, agriculture needs to lead out on water issues. Their second premise, which... I thought kind of came out of nowhere, but it made sense. In fact, when the fellow in the room mentioned, I wish I had been the one to think of it. 
<laughs> he said, it's a matter of national security. If we don't manage our water resources and our water policy in, in the United States so that we recognize the essential, the, the essential need for agriculture and ag agriculture needs water to produce food. So their, their byline became real simple. We, the United States, need food. And we, we need agriculture to produce food. And agriculture needs water to produce food. And that, that mantra seems to get lost in the discussion. But uh, I can tell you that in Utah, we've, we've pressed that very hard. We need food. Agriculture produces our food. Agriculture needs water to produce the food. And we, we hear in Utah media representatives, academics, and, and frankly, some just comments at, at large among the citizens that agriculture only represents, if you take farm gate receipts, it's less than 2% of our economy. Why do we put so much water on 2% of our economy? I was quite interested to learn the same, or hear the same arguments being made in California, where by value, 50% of the ag production in the country measured by value, not volume or any particular commodity, comes from California. And most of that is irrigated agriculture. So if all across the country we're saying, why are we spending so much water on agriculture? And doesn't, doesn't that hurt our economy? Well, yeah, unless you want to eat. <laughs> <laughs> or national yeah. or have national security. Or have national security. Because if you know, I mean look what's what happened, look what has happened. Let's Okay, Valine, let's take that and compare it to energy. Energy, where there was a time when we imported a lot of energy, or most of our energy, and we still import a lot, but we also export energy now. Why? Because the, the, the emphasis on production, energy production in the United States, particularly fracking technology, made energy very available. But for a time, uh, we were dependent on foreign energy. Look at, East, look at Europe now with the Ukraine-Russia conflict. I'll say Russia's war on the Ukraine and how that's disrupted energy supplies. Do we want to be in the same position on food? And I don't think so. For many years, Utah, or the United States, excuse me, I'm substituting my state for the United States. <laughs> uh, the United States had a positive export balance, positive balance of trade, in agriculture in the last couple of years we've slipped where we're we have a negative balance of trade in agriculture it'd be really I, i'd like to know more about the numbers on that i don't so i can't really speak to it but if we have to start worrying about where our, where our food's coming from and whether food can be weaponized our national security is important just i'll just be that blunt about it just out of curiosity, Warren, how how could our food be weaponized with with this type of interference? How how would that happen? I mean, can give I, us a scenario. <laughs> let me rephrase just for, to make the point, Catherine. Let me rephrase what you said. It's how could our our food supply be weaponized? Well, if we have the land and the water and the people 
to produce food, it's less likely to be weaponized. If we have to go outside of our borders to get our food, then it's then you can see how it can be weaponized by uh, China has gone after agriculture in Brazil. And frankly, a, a large part of what of the soybean market for us, pardon me, I'm being distracted by a fellow from Farm Bureau calling me. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're to a degree distracted, not to a degree, I'm distracted, but to quite a degree, the, the Brazilian soy crop has been diverted to China. Now there's some trade wars and so on involved in that, but what you see is a, an asserted effort by China to invest in and to develop trade relations with Brazilian producers to the point that a lot of their pro their production goes to China. It, it doesn't take much imagination to see how that, if, if that continues to grow, if, you, if US production contracts and we have to start importing food from other places um, and we see countries that have been our traditional enemies and even you know, non non-governmental organizations or, or influences on that market uh, we go back to the days of the think of the medieval siege where you you didn't have to knock down the castle walls you just had to lay siege to it, block off all the food coming in and it wasn't long before the uh, castle had to be surrendered because people couldn't survive can you imagine the dislocation we'd see in the United States if food became scarce? We're spoiled. We we go to the grocery store and it's there. But if that if that's disrupted, I'll leave to your imaginations where where that leaves us. And that's that's where the group in in Dallas came to is if we if we allow our food supplies to become disrupted, and the most obvious way to do that is disruption of the water used to produce food. And then have to rely on foreign sources. Sorry, Belene, there's the long question, long answer to a short question again. Well, that's why we brought you here. That's exactly why you're here, because we want to hear more, more about the nuances and in depth of this, because it seems like we hear a lot of oh, this water. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> what are we gonna do about it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Okay, so we hear, wow, there's not enough water. There's that age-old adage. I suppose that's why it's called an adage that in the West, whiskey is made for drinking, water is made for fighting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's just something that we all just sort of laugh and tell each other whenever we're at a water meeting or, you know, a water topic comes up at, at one of the ag meetings that we go to. But I don't know this, Warren. I have not been, I, I have never been in the water space really besides benefiting from it and knowing that my cows need to drink. And this is where you spent your career, but has that gotten, has that adage become even sharper in the last few decades um, or sooner? Is that, is that becoming more and more true or is it the same true when we're just more aware of it? Uh what, what, what if I don't want to live with the dichotomy you just handed me, Catherine? What if I want to expand on that a bit? Please. <laughs> First of all, you look, you look at what happened. There, there's such an enormous growth 
population. And Valine, you mentioned the, the Colorado River. L look at how much of the U.S. economy and how much of our food supply relies on the Colorado River. And the Colorado River anymore is, it, it's over-allocated. A, a great portion of what of the water from the Colorado River goes to food production in Mexico. Mexico has the highest priority under the treaty, incidentally. Uh, it's, we don't, I don't know how well you can do a whole program on how well that priority is allocated because there's an old saying in the West also, Catherine, that hierarchy beats priority. The person higher on the river might have a better water right than the guy with the legal right at the bottom of the river. Mm -hmm. And to some degree, that's true True with the Colorado, but the Colorado is so used up that, you know, the reservoirs, the two main reservoirs, uh, Lake Powell and Lake Mead, are the lowest levels they've been in decades. Lake Powell's at the lowest level it's been since the since the dam, at Glen, since Glen Canyon Dam was built. So when you look at allocating that water, to all the claimants on it, it takes up the entire river. The river no longer reaches the ocean except as a managed artificial event. Think about that. We see the, the enormous growth in populations. Most of the Western states are same population double. In Utah, we have an interesting situation because counting the Colorado now as a, as a so-called terminal river that is that doesn't reach the ocean, um, and then the, the various watersheds in Utah that terminate at terminal lakes and endoreic rivers, they're called, because they don't reach the ocean. That's our water budget. We're projected to have our population double in Utah in the next 30 years. How are we going to do that? How are we going to double the population and still maintain any water in agriculture? My old... Uh, <laughs> I used to practice law with an old fellow named Thorpe Waddingham. Th Thorpe was kind of a force of nature from a one-man office in rural Delta, Utah. He'd been the state bar president. He'd been the president of the Utah Senate. He'd also been a POW in Germany in World War II as a, his, his B-24 liberator was shot down and he spent, he doesn't even remember how many days in solitary confinement. He was a deep thinker. He was also a charter member of the Utah, or excuse me, the Western States Water Council. And and he said this, he said, every year he talked to a group of farmers that own a, that manage and own irrigation companies here in central Utah. And he'd say, when the cities need a drink of water, they're going to come after yours. Your job is to see you get paid for it. <laughs> yeah, get paid for it when they do. And, and we're seeing that play out all across the West. The cities... And it's the, the the international news media now is is watching Great Salt Lake because Great Salt Lake's at less than half of its volume where it, from where it was forty years ago. Now this year, happily, there's been record snowfall and the lake's somewhat filling, but it will take a number of years to do that. But you see the same thing in in California, Mona Lake. Uh, it, it was dried up so the water could be sent to Los Angeles. Los Angeles takes a lot of water out of the Colorado River. Now, it, you know, call, call these water users names or whatever, but the fact is, on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we need water. So, how do we allocate it? And back to your question, 
building, the how do we allocate it on an interstate basis? Well, the federal government has ceded management of water to the states. In fact, under the 10th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, that probably belonged there in the first place, but there's one man's political opinion. <laughs> but that means the states, when they allocate water now, have to set up compacts. And you find compacts all across the West and in Eastern states as well, where the states get together, reach an agreement on how to allocate an interstate river, the water from an interstate river, how the uh, how that should be managed, and in some cases, that, in some cases they manage that through just in local, that is interstate groups. In other state, these situations, such as in the Colorado River, they have, in a sense, upward delegated that to the United States government during reclamation. But to change those allocations now, think about this on the Colorado River. The, the allocation made in the 1920s assumed that the river would produce 15 million acre feet per year. Of course, we all know acre foot is uh, 325,851 gallons. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> but, Valine does know that. <laughs> excellent. <laughs> uh, so 15 million acre feet, but the river doesn't produce that much. The allocation was made in years when the, the data gathering wasn't all that good, frankly. The technology just wasn't there. And also, it, there were record high runoff years, at least up to that point. Most years, the record doesn't, the river doesn't produce the 15 million acre feet. So now what do we do? Well, let's just get the states together and work it out. There's seven states, count them on down the river. And the biggest one's California, who has more people in Congress than all the other states on the Colorado River Compact put together. How's that going to turn out? Why am I? <laughs> and, and the drought has been giving us a chance to test that out and how to reallocate the river, whether to reallocate the river and so on. The other place in the country that really troubles me is the Ogallala Aquifer, because you have the same thing as I recall 11 states drawing water from that one aquifer. You know, of course, there are a lot of sub-aquifers and all that, but generally speaking, the Ogallala Aquifer how are we going to do that? The states don't trust the federal government. The federal government, uh, most ag people would say, has a distinct blue flavor to it nowadays. And if we, how are we going to fight? How are we going to work out these conflicts over water? Well, the agriculture, I'm going to go back to the group that met in Texas in 2012 and said agriculture has to lead the way. And we have to make sure people understand the role of water in food production, how water is managed, because how many people know that? In Utah, 1% of people are farmers. And that there's water managers beyond that, and they're very serious and dedicated professionals. But how are 1% or shall we enlarge that and say 2% will include the water managers in there? <laughs> And frankly, I don't think we get to 2% then. How do you outvote the rest of those folks when you have to educate them? You have to help them understand the importance of water. And if we look at the, on a national basis, in Australia, the states had kind of fouled up their, I don't know if fouled up maybe 
too strong, but they, they'd run into problems with their water allocations because they're, they had allocated water on, in the Murray-Darling Rivers Basin based on wet years. And in dry years, a lot of farms had to be dried up. And Australia is kind of the land of extremes that we're seeing now in the United States. In wet years, everyone gets flooded. In dry years, <laughs> there's no water. <laughs> so the states there actually delegated to their national government the reallocation of water on the Murray Murray Darling Basin. It's, it's a very involved story, and I'm oversimplifying it. <clears throat> and it worked. And when the delegation was done, the federal government gave it back to the states, and they now manage. Can you see that happening in the United States? Not Think under about. the current, not under the current climate we're in, because even the states you're talking about in those drainage basins or in that aquifer, they're not even the same color most of the time. And and not that that plays a role, but it plays a big role in agriculture and having a defense at the table to protect protect water for ag. Because, and I I'm going to use the analogy of just agriculture in general, but how and back to your comment of being spoiled and going to the grocery store and not needing to know where our food comes from. It's the same with water. We are so blessed that I can walk over to the kitchen, turn on the tap and know that clean, healthy water is going to come out and nobody questions it. Like they don't think of the the process it comes unless they've, they're farming or an engineer or a water, water. And so I think we need to bring, continue to bring the critical nature of this topic to the forefront of everybody's mind so that we can have conversation because it's not i mean I, I talk about it a lot but i'm a water engineer mo doing for dairies and feedlots so i i mean we deal with it almost on a daily basis but 98 percent of the world doesn't do that <laughs> so you really do know how many gallons are in an acre foot of water i do <laughs> <laughs> I size ponds based off of those numbers. So, <laughs> uh, and what you've what you've done in a what you've touched on there is kind of the logical extremes of some of these positions. My, I'll, I'll go back to my old partner Thorpe. He used to love to do logical extremes. So if if half of the water in the United States that's and the the half of food that's produced using agriculture. And if you look at a chart of the Western states, I've got one on screen here that um, talks about how much water is used in agriculture. It's pretty significant. It, I, Idaho, now this this is uh, based on the last chart I have on this. I actually had to have a friend build it using GIS information, but it's based on data through 2010. And Idaho at that time, 81% of the water that's taken out of nature. I want to be very careful how I say that. Not 81% of the water in Idaho, but 81% of the water that's taken for human use goes to agriculture. California, it was 60% as of 2010. Uh, and, and those numbers are similar all across the so-called reclamation states, the 17 Western states. So if you just stop irrigation and cut your food production in half, theoretically, where would that leave the United States? There'd be, I mean, literally, there'd be blood in the streets, wouldn't there? Mm -hmm. I think so. And we even see 
on a couple of the projects I'm working on in, in Southern Idaho in a specific irrigation district that's groundwater, we're starting to see a lot of infighting in agriculture too. You know, the sugar beets against the potatoes versus the dairies versus the beef guys. Like they're starting to infight, which makes me nervous. You know, when agriculture can't be united and lead the way on some of this, um, and you get districts against each other, there's a chance we could lose it all technically. Yeah, if if the 1%, and, and the, you know, this is the argument you hear in the press. If 1% of the population managing less than 2% of the economy has 80% of the water that's available for use, what where's, where's the equity in that? And if if then that one percent start fighting each over each other, that's 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 a nightmare scenario. Again, I'll go back to that group in two thousand twelve. They felt that that would be just a nightmare scenario. It, it was very interesting in two days how much ground we covered. It sounds like a fascinating place to have been at, Warren. And it, I mean, it clearly left a a mark in your mind. Um, yeah, I, I brought a copy. Of the, I, I brought copies of the report back and gave them to our governor, then Governor Gary Herbert, handed them to him to start of a meeting. And for the first ten minutes of the meeting, Governor Herbert sat and looked at the books. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then he put them down and said, "He says I'm sorry to have taken that time, but this is something I've been thinking about." And he says, now I'm talking to my senior staff. I want to put in place a water strategy for the next 50 years. And then he articulated how he wanted to do that. And little did I know that he followed that by volunteering my time and <laughs> people for the next four years to put together a water strategy. And that water strategy has been very, it, it, we, we had 40, 41 people from across the political spectrum and all across the water spectrum, if you will. Uh, the proponents of the Lake Powell pipeline over to St. George, Utah, the opponents of the Lake Powell pipeline. And at the end of the four years, we had a consensus document. So I'm very optimistic that with the right approach and with agriculture taking a very active role, because who knows water better than agriculture? <laughs> with agriculture leading the way, or at least participating in the leadership, hopefully we can get collaborative solutions instead of competitive solutions because competitive solutions will i i, I don't think that will go well so Belina, i'm sorry you you throw an idea out there and i uh <laughs> <laughs> that's don't, the, don't lane, so that's the joys of a podcast though is it's and what i've really enjoyed too about our podcast is like we have this important topic water and it helps us brain dump a little bit and get get our listeners to also think about these important topics of of whatever we're talking about but today specifically water so our our brain dumps and our rabbit trails are what what make a podcast a podcast so we really do appreciate you um rabbit trailing with us and and expanding and helping helping our listeners to see see the full picture of water just not what comes through their head gate on a given a given year or a given season. And I was at a um, farm managers meeting in Twin Falls and 
one of the guys was given a brief report on what he does. We've got a lot of water users in different districts. And he said, you know, every time we get into a drought, we all start getting tense, get, and then water comes again. And we forget about everything we learned from the last drought. And then here we are again, hashing out the same things. And so I think if we can, those, those periods of recovery are longer and longer between now, because we're using the water, even though water's not created or destroyed, really, we're spreading it out and using it in different ways and um, having to spread it farther and it's polluted a little bit more or consumed a little bit more than it ever was historically when a lot of these water rights were written back in the early 1900s or late 1800s. And so it's, I don't know, these, these conversations are great and we appreciate, we appreciate the rabbit trails that these lead to because it's, it opens all our minds to, to what's actually happening in the world on a deeper level. Well, let, let me pick up, may I, uh, Catherine, I have, I, I keep talking and you haven't had a chance to throw your thoughts. All the reason in. we have a podcast for is so that we can talk to interesting people. Valerie uh, and I have tried a few times and it's fun for me and her just to go back and forth, but it's, it's much more interesting for our listeners if, if there's a guest on board. All right. Well, I, I I want to be interesting when I grow up. So, uh, now, now, speaking of that, just just for fun, Catherine, Valine talked about rabbit trails. What was the mascot of the high school you graduated from? Warren, are you trying to embarrass me? She 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 graduated from Delta High School, and their mascot is the Delta Rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I would also like to point out for the record that I learned that um, in the 1960s, when this school was either being formed or built or whatever, we had the opportunity to choose between rabbits and Mustangs. Mm -hmm. I don't understand why they chose rabbits. Well, because Hinkley, Hinkley High School was the smaller high school being merged into Delta High School. And their mass, the Hinkley mascot was Mustangs. And so the larger school had more votes. So they, they chose to keep the rabbits. Now let's translate that into what we're talking about. <laughs> I can As we're setting water policy, do we want to do that by votes or do we want to do that by some notion of resilience? Now, Valina, you, you touched on, and I'm going to pick up and elaborate until you tell me to quit, <laughs> on the notion of water law evolving. Water law across the Western states is based on first in time, first in right. The person that builds their ditch and builds the dam and so on has to has to have the security that that will be their water to be used as long as water you know and, until it rains no more and the first one there who did that has the first right to that water and the, the subsequent people don't get to take water until that first one has their right satisfied wow how greedy is that well it's wise because if your economy, and let's get down to brass tacks here, if your food supply is based on that water being able to be used there until you no longer use it for that benefit to society, you should have the right to keep using it. And there's quite a number of folks that calls now for abandoning Western water law and leaving the allocation of water to the states. Well, guess what? The states do allocate the water. <laughs> it's the prior appropriation system. And the economy is built around that. If you jerk that foundation stone out of the economy, what happens? 
So if we say, well, farmers farmers should be kind, they should proportionally share the water when there's shortages. Well, does that mean, you know how thin the margins are in farming? If you say everybody has to cut back 10%, that's probably 10 times their profit margin. So the, the you, you, you collapse the farm enterprises you economically by, by those sort of things. It's kind of a rugged principle, actually, but it's the rugged West, and that's the water principles we live by. But I, I have participated now. I've, you know, you hang around long enough; these things happen to you. Um, I, I've served on, and still serve on, a number of statewide water councils that, among other things, write water legislation. And I can tell you, in the last twenty, well, since nineteen. What if I can't remember since 19 what? No, <laughs> since about 1998, when I started then working on these state state level councils, many of which prepare legislation, we've written over 200 amendments to Utah's water code. Wow. So in other words, it evolves. But it evolves around those basic principles of prior appropriation, now, this sounds very almost socialist, but in Utah, the water doesn't belong to individuals. Water belongs to the state. Mm -hmm. The individual owns the right to use that water. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have to think of that that's kind of a complex structure, but it works. So if you get a group of people together, like, like we did with Governor Herbert's water strategy, our four-year Stand, he said, so funny, the letter he sent out, he says, that we, we predict it will take about a year and six meetings. Well, it took four years and hundreds of meetings. because <laughs> of But we have found that, and we're carrying that same system forward in a number of organizations, councils, task forces, and so on within the state that the legislature has enacted based on that water strategy that Governor Herbert had a start on all going back to that Texas A&M Kingsville paper, at least that's when he announced it. And we're developing some rather wonderful collaborative solutions. Utah just passed Senate Bill 277, which is the result of about 25 years of collaborative effort. But this, it was missing one piece, and that one piece was found two weeks before the end of our legislative session this year. And the legislators rushed into place and put put it in place. It allows a farmer who saves saves water in quotes to have the economic benefit of that saved water. Because before that, if the farmer went to all the expense and trouble to try to reduce his water demand, he, he saw no benefit to it other than the feel, no, I feel good, I've done this thing for society. Right. But how am I gonna pay for it when the technology changes in five years? And I have to do it over again. Well, mm -hmm. our legislature wisely put together with, with one particular sen senator, Scott Sandel, leading the way. He had an idea that brought it all together. And now we're trying to implement that. The legislature's betting big on this. The legislature's putting $200 million this year. Which, you know, for Utah, that's a big chunk of money. Yeah. Maybe in our household budgets, that would be a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> to put improved water systems in place and then created other statutes that give incentive for, for the farmer and the cities to work together and see that the farmers get paid when they 
save water and save it and share it with the cities. So collaborative solutions are possible. I'm very optimistic about what I'm seeing. And other Western states, I think, are being equally creative. Well, Warren, that I think, like on that positive note, I think is a good place for us to maybe wrap up. Um, and I we've so, so appreciated this conversation. And I just based off of my feelings, I feel like we've just barely scratched scratched the surface of everything we can talk about via water. We could dive into a number of the studies you've talked about, your four-year um, stint on the collaboration efforts and so forth. Um, but do you have any parting thoughts for our listeners, um, any words of wisdom or Warren Peterson quotes that you would like to leave leave behind with us today? I don't, I don't know if I have any Warren Peterson quotes, but I'll, I'll, I'm not sure I even have any wisdom, but I would like to share this idea. Let's go back to your initial question. What about foreign ownership now? Can you imagine having your local water district board, or in a lot of areas in the West, we have mutual irrigation companies, water, water delivery cooperatives. Can you imagine what a board meeting like that would look like if you had a representative from the Saudi royal family? and from a stock exchange in in Taiwan or and so on what how would you manage those those things without the engagement and involvement of the local farmers so we've we've got we've got only the best system that's ever been created with all of its nasty little problems and bumps and wiggles but one farmer who used to local farmer here would say person who doesn't have a drink of water has only one problem the person who has a drink of water but has no food has only one problem a person who has food and water has many problems well what how fortunate we are we have many problems but let's not lose sight of that foundation on which all of it depends and let's work out solutions collaboratively instead of fighting over it. I, Catherine introduced me as a lawyer. Well, I, I was hired away from my law firm back in 2007. And that's when I went into being an internet, part of an, a company that does international farm investment and farm management. Um, so I'd, I'd like to say that I'm a repenting lawyer <laughs> with that many years of sobriety now, you know, say 16 years of sobriety. <laughs> I, I say that to commend those who will take those big steps. And I'm trying to take big steps to see the world more broadly than just fighting over water, but how do we collaboratively, collaboratively solve water problems? Let's go there. Well, thank you, Warren, because that's, that's what Catherine and I are, are doing with, the millennial ag podcast or at least trying to is is turning over the rock and seeing why it was placed there what caused it to be there and why is it the shape it is and and how can we all figure out how to how to work together because divisive and frustration is never going to get us where we need to go so we again thank you so much for joining us um and we thank you listeners for tuning into this week's episode of the millennial ag podcast you can find us on facebook instagram or twitter or email us at talk to us at millennialag.com until next week we are millennial ag